Um, this morning, I want to talk about love and, and how it kind of affects unity in the body to some extent. Um, unity has been kind of the theme. It wasn't like we sat down and said, well, we're going to talk about unity. It was just kind of what everybody was on everybody's heart when we sat down as a team to talk about what we were going to be uh, speaking about. And that theme just kind of just emerged. So, um, so anyway, moving on to the, the passage, um, start out with, uh, you know, remember when Jesus was asked by some Pharisees, he was asked, uh, so what's the greatest commandment? And you remember what he said in Matthew 22? He said, uh, uh, said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. What I find to be really amazing about that verse or that set of verses is what Jesus said. It's so short. It's so concise. Yet it encompasses all of our interactions with God and with people, horizontally and vertically. And it's so short and simple, and we try to make it into something that's not more complicated. Uh, everything in the Old Testament and New Testament can really be summed up in one word, love. Everything that has to do with Jesus and why he came and suffered, it all comes down to love. So just in case the disciples missed it in Matthew 22, Jesus goes on in the last hours. He's with the disciples in John 13. He says, I give you a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that you may love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The last part of that is just really potent for us because, folks, God doesn't have another plan. The plan is, is for us to love one another, and that's how we're going to reach the world, and not by some slick advertising campaign or something that I say up here. It's really how we love and interact and how we're an example. Uh, like, for instance, with Chad, um, we, just, we just love him, you know, and, uh, and even though situations change uh, and how we, how we love each other and we love well. And, uh, but still, I know I, myself, and probably some of you, we do miss the mark on that. And so hopefully some of this discussion will, will help us with that. Um, so, you know, uh, talking about loving one another and loving God, and, you know, really, there, God is love. He's the es- it's his essence. And in 1 John 4, 16, we read, And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love, period. One sentence. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God is love. You know, often we remember that God is holy. And that is scary, and it should be, um, because we're not. Um, and it, it leads us to the fact that we need a Savior. But we ought not forget that God is love. And he wants us to be like him, to love. Now, about now, you're probably saying to yourself, okay, all these commands about love, they're great in theory. But how do we practically do this? Well, the Apostle Paul penned 1 Corinthians, and in the 13th chapter, he talks a lot about love and what it, what it really means, and that will be the main text for this morning. There's a lot of practical things in that chapter, 
But before I go too much further, I want to give you the bottom line for this message, and that is love is the source of good works, not the other way around. Love is the source of our good works. If we get that turned around, it becomes legalism. Now, before I get into some of the other details of the message, I do need to mention one thing. Uh, my main source for this material is uh, a John MacArthur commentary on 1 Corinthians. Um, so a lot of what I've pulled, the technical definitions and stuff are from that commentary, and I just wanted to, to let you know. I didn't make that up. I'm not that smart. Um, and, you know, a comment about, about extra-biblical sources. I mean, it's a great commentary, but I always tell people, don't just because the guy has a Ph.D., don't believe it. Uh, make sure you put it through your own your own, uh, you know, understanding of the scripture as, as well as your own circumstances. And, uh, but I found that that commentary series, as well as uh, his study Bible, would be a great help. And if, if you've got a study Bible you like, I recommend using it. But if you don't, you might want to give that one a try. So our main text this morning will be 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. And you can divide that into three sections. And uh, the first section is the importance of love. The second section is the attributes of love. And the third section is the superiority of love over other gifts and activities. All right, so in the first section, um, okay, so we need a little bit of background before we run up to chapter 13. It's kind of in the middle of the book. So you need to understand that the Corinthian church had some trouble. Uh, in chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, it was a total disaster. Um, then the first part of chapter 12, uh, Paul talks about how all their spiritual gifts are being misused. And later on in chapter 12, uh, Paul appeals for unity and makes the case that they need to be interdependent, not independent. And uh, as you read through those chapters, I think you would probably agree with me if, with saying that those folks... They pretty much pride and arrogance was the norm. And, uh, and that's something that we need to watch for. So when it comes to chapter 13, Paul talks about love. And you're probably thinking with all the trouble that they had, if you read through, I mean, all the trouble, uh, they don't need love. They, they need to, like, be corrected. They need to be, have some restraints. They need some rules. Uh, maybe they need to be taken to the woodshed with a switch figuratively. These people need some discipline. So, Paul, what are you doing now? Are you going soft? Why, why is love the thing that he, he goes to now after all this, these sins? I mean, they had immoral, immor immorality in their church that wasn't even named amongst the pagans. We don't know exactly what that was, but that's pretty, that's pretty bad. Um, they had, I mean, disunity. Um, they even had believers taking each other to court and suing each other. A little bit like our litigation-happy society that we live in. So with all that strife, all that disunity, Paul, why now? Well, just like Jesus when he said about the greatest commandments, he, that last phrase... All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. All the answers in God's economy usually relate to love in some way. So let's see what, not the same as I love my wife, you know. Um, 
that's a different, a different kind of love. Um, so it, the New Testament, of course, is written in Greek. And the Greeks, they pretty much had a separate word for almost everything. Uh, this is a wonderful thing about the language. It's very, very uh, precise. And I won't bore you with all the details about the different Greek words for love. Only that the one that is used in this section and mostly in the, in the New Testament is actually the rarest word in all the Greek literature. The Greeks were not too much into this kind of love. Um, so the word is agape. You may have heard that. And you can Google it or look for it in your, in your study Bible. And you look around, there's a lot of different definitions, but they all kind of kind of are the same and they come back to the same things. And what I always kind of, my working definition that I use is to act in a way that is best for someone else. The kind of love, this kind of love may accompany feelings, but it's not based on feelings, okay? This type of love is a decision, a decision to take action. When I married my wife, I made a decision to love her and that decision changed my lifestyle to live with her, to forsake all others for life. Now, those of you who are married probably have already found out that, that uh, all those feelings on that special day do fade, and it does become a decision. One of the, the best examples is, of love comes from Jesus, and listen to what the, the uh, writer of Romans, Romans says when he talks about the cross. In Romans 5, 6 or 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some versions, while we were yet sinners. That's the one I think I've memorized. Um, you know, Jesus made a decision to put this gift of, of salvation out there, not based on a warm, fuzzy feeling, and it wasn't based on anything that we did, because, well, we didn't exist yet. So remember that question I asked you before, what is love? Love is a decision to do good for another. All right, well, let's get to the first section here. And this first section you might call the importance of love. Um, now that we've defined the term love, it'll help us understand this a little better. I'll be taking a few verses and then talk about them and then take a few more verses. So the first section is one through three. If we, sp <clears throat> if we speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have, have love, I gain nothing. So the first part of this uh, section here, there's five uh, things that we might say what love is not. And uh, they're all, some way, uh, could be described as gifts from the Holy Spirit. These would be listed uh, as, as, as gifts. 
And uh, so the first one is, is tongues. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So to speak in tongues means to speak another language uh, that wasn't, say, known to me. If I were to start speaking in a language that uh, maybe you all spoke Portuguese and I needed to speak to you, that would, and that would be miraculous. And that would be a real, be something, I'd be used by God. I mean, it would be fantastic, phenomenal. A lot of times these events, uh, like Pentecost, uh, precede tremendous church growth. Um, this is the kind of stuff that's really big king, kingdom work. And uh, so if you're doing, you know, something like that, if without love it's just a bunch of noise, it's a clanging gong, a cymbal, it's indistinct, it's, it's nothing. So then he moves on to prophecy, which you might call knowledge. If I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, we a lot of times think of the word prophet as a, like the prophets of old they for, could foretell the future in God's judgment, and that is a form of prophecy. But in its, in its uh, real meaning, it's knowledge. They knew something, and they, uh, they used that information to uh, get people to repent. So, but in this context, Paul's talking more about having knowledge. So if we could have all knowledge, if we could understand everything, if, we, if as a teacher I could explain everything to all of you so that you understand, if I had this supernatural ability to communicate, and then all that knowledge comes to the next part of the verse so that we are transformed to have faith, as, that our understanding would produce faith, so much faith that we could move a mountain. The, this is the idea of secret knowledge. We can be transformed to have a supernatural faith if we just get the knowledge. Um, so in uh, the second part of that verse, it says, if we have uh, faith, we can move mountains. Now that's some kind of faith. You know? that's, that's, the, that's really a big action. I mean, we talk about faith with action. This is miraculous. This would be something that Nobody has ever seen. I've never heard of it even being recorded in Scripture. It's kind of a hyperbole uh, that, that Jesus even uses. Um, so it's like, wow, if you do something really, really miraculous, you know, and, uh, you know, God, you know, let me do it. Let me do it. Send me in, coach, right? Paul says wrong. But I do not have love. I am nothing. I am nothing. What a letdown. You see, in God's economy, it's about the heart. Speaking of heart attitude, let's look at the God, God's man, Jonah. I don't know, you remember Jonah? The unwilling prophet? You remember the story. God sent him to preach judgment. Jonah knew that the people that would hear God's message and repent, repent and be saved, and he was like all about Israel, not about some other country. Uh, so um, he didn't like God's plan. So God sent him, uh, so he had to go down to the to the coast there to catch a boat uh, to Nineveh. And uh, so he catches the boat that's going the other direction. And he thinks, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to outrun God and go the other way. So you remember the story, he ends up in the water and a big fish uh, takes some special delivery to Nineveh. Now to add insult to injury, God gave him Jonah a timeout for three days in the fish. Can you imagine being in a fish? I don't know. They swim underwater. I don't know how he breathed. I imagine he was like alternately 
gasping for air and, and, and breathing. I don't know. It probably was not uh, you know, a, a, a three-day tour. Uh, can you imagine what it was like? Well, in the, after that experience, I guess Jonah figured out that, okay, I got no choice. So he shared the prophecy that God had given him, and the people repented. And, you know, if I was a prophet, I would think, and I did that, and God worked through me, I'd be, like, really stoked. No, not Jonah. He thought the whole thing was a failure, and he asked God to kill him. Literally, read it. Talk about a drama queen this guy was, you know. Even though Jonah had knowledge, and he shared it, he did what God directed him. And, and, and God's plan was successful. Jonah didn't have love. He hated those people, you see. So it's more than just knowledge. So how could Jonah, uh, Jonah be that way? How could he try to thwart God? How often are we that way? Anyway, back to the text. Charity. If I give all my possessions to the poor, the term give means to dole out in small quantities with, uh, and significant long-term commitment to distribute all of one's possessions. The rabbis of Jesus' time taught that you should never have to give more than 20%, that that was like super spiritual. So this idea of giving all, uh, this type of generosity is far beyond anything uh, that would be uh, a cultural norm. And so again, this is this idea of charity being way above anybody else. And the next one is hardship. Uh, I give my body to hardship that I may may boast. And uh, as a child, I memorized uh, this verse in King James, and it's odd. The phrase reads, and though I give my body to be burned, and I always thought that is just the weirdest thing. You know, why? What does that mean? And uh, I did a little reading on that. There's several interpretations. It's possible that it was uh, referring to uh, when a a slave owner would take a branding iron and brand one of his slaves. Uh, Or, uh, and I think this is probably more likely, it was referring to martyrs who were burned at the stake. So in other words, if I was martyred for the cause of Jesus, but if I didn't have love... So, by the way, that idea of bearing hardship sounds a bit like what Jesus did on the cross for us, the ultimate example. And he had love. But if we don't have love, in verse 13, or 3, uh, the latter part there, but do not have love, I gain nothing. In verse 2, Paul said, I am nothing. And just now in verse 3, he says, I gain nothing. I'm not sure what the difference between those two are. But it sounds like it's a lot of nothing. So looking at this section, Paul paints a picture of somebody with these five really specific examples of an extraordinary works. He's kind of rolled them together in some sort of a super saint and says, you know, even if I was all of those five things, without love it's worthless. So the first three verses talks about how without love, all your effort is worthless. The next part talks about some actions connected with love. And I kind of look at this as like if if you look at the the human body, if love was the skeleton, these actions are the muscles that, that help us to move, to take action. 
So these are the attributes of love. So this is verse seven, uh, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So let me run down through some of these and talk about, give a little more detail about the, what, what it means. Love is patient. Um, the word is long-suffering. can mean that, or it literally means long-tempered. This word is normally used to speak of people and not circumstances. Love is kind. That's kindness that we give to others, in this case, even our enemies. This is not a passive action this, or uh, event. It's active. This is not just feeling generous. It's being generous. In Matthew 5.40, Jesus says this, And if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. That's, that's kindness. Next comes love is, does not envy. Now, some translations say jealous. Now, this, this shows up in two ways, uh, jealousy and envy. Uh, first, we might just want what somebody else has, and, uh, and that's bad enough. And, you know, maybe we steal it or, uh, or just, uh, just really want it and fixate on it. And, you know, that could, I don't know, just we're not trusting the Lord for that. Um, now, if that's not bad enough, the next one is worse. We could wish evil on someone. We wish that they wouldn't have it. You know, if you can't, if I can't have it, I don't want you to have it. You know, you've been, had good fortune. Well, I don't want you to have good fortune because I don't have good fortune. That's, that's some kind of evil. So love does not do that. Next comes love does not boast. Now, some translations use the word brag instead. So when we're successful, we're not to brag about it. Bragging and jealousy are actually two sides of the same coin. Jealousy is wanting others to have, or is, jealousy is wanting what others have, and bragging is want others to want what I have. So jealousy puts others down while boasting tries to build us up. Now, sometimes, need to maybe make a distinction here. Sometimes we talk about ourselves, and it's not intended to build up or drag down. And as I thought about this, there's a fine line between these two sins and just sharing about our lives. I think we need to ask a question when we're thinking about this. If I share this thing about myself, will the other person be genuinely happy for me or will they be brought down and become jealous of me? You see, it's not how I feel about what I'm talking about. It's how the recipient of my words feels about what I'm saying. And so that's just part of being a little outside yourself and uh, empathizing with those around you. Next come, comes love is not proud. And this is also translated in, in some versions as arrogant. This is the idea of looking down on someone or thinking that you're superior to another. Also, love does not dishonor others. Uh, other translations use the word act unbecomingly. I remember memorizing those words, and uh, the big word. Uh, <laughs> dishonoring others is, is easier to understand than unbecoming. But the idea is, is that we're not rude or have bad manners. 
You know, when I'm, pride, when I'm prideful, I've noticed that it's easy for me to run, the, run over other people's feelings or to, to just be unaware and be rude. Next, love is not self-seeking. Some translations say seek its own. The word selfish comes to mind. If you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you may notice that the people, they were seeking spiritual gifts, and that all sounds good, but they were seeking it for their own benefit. Not so good. Love is not easily angered. This can be translated provoked. This is, this is a sudden outburst of emotion or anger. It's really the opposite of long-suffering. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Other translations say, does not take into account a wrong suffered. This is really forgiveness in action. Love does not delight in evil. And some translations say, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In Isaiah 5.20 we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Wow, does that sound like our society? How many times have I heard somebody say, you know, they, they want to rewrite morality or, or they, they, they'll tell you, well, that's your morality or, you know, everybody has their own truth. Really? I, don't, I think that's not the definition of truth. But to call something evil, a good that's evil, is really quite a, a, a serious matter uh, for us to, to be aware of. I, I, I think of, uh, so, I mean, Instances where people have just turned an eye, a blind eye to what their children are doing just because they don't want to admit it or they don't want to confront them or they attribute other motivations when what they're doing is pretty obvious. So at this point, we've covered about 10 topics that are kind of negative, and uh, Paul continues on with five positive uh, topics. But rejoices in the truth. This is not the opposite of, just the opposite of, of uh, not delighting in evil. This is reve- rejoicing in God's revealed truth, in Scripture, in His attributes, in all of those good things. Um, you know, and, and so we got to, this is a point where we kind of got to put things in balance. We talked about kindness, but kindness cannot be at the, at the expense of truth. Um, you know, we, Sometimes we want to water down the gospel so people feel better about themselves. And that's not loving and that's not kind. Uh, you know, if we gloss over their need for repentance, uh, for instance. Next, love always protects. This is also translated as bears all things. The word bear means to protect, to cover, or support. For instance, if we love someone, we don't believe gossip. We stand up for them. Now, our society has a rather perverse habit, pleasure, in exposing evil and embarrassing and salacious facts about people and then putting them on the Internet, the news, or whatever. And uh, Proverbs has some words for us in Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. Try to remember that the next time you hear gossip. Love always trusts. This also translated believes all things. Now, this is not some Pollyanna-type philosophy, uh, worldview, uh, or it's not being overly naive. This is based on spiritual discernment. But when questionable circumstances come up, instead of just believing the worst right away, we need to wait until all the facts are in. And how many times have you seen somebody, um, a public figure in particular, 
maybe ruined by gossip uh, because the, they've been tried and convicted in the media before uh, all the facts are known. This can really ruin a person's reputation uh, quite quickly because people don't remember the correction. They only remember the, the salacious uh, details. Love always hopes, even when we're out of faith, we can still hope. Holding out to hope is a sign of true love. How many times have you seen a parent hope that their backslidden child would return and they keep holding on or for that wayward spouse? Love always perseveres, also translated endures all things. It's actually a military term. It means to hold your ground at all costs. Love holds out against all odds. Now we come to verse 8, and this is, Paul talks about the superiority of love over other gifts. And we read, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. See, the Corinthians were all about these showy gifts like tongues and, and, um, and prophecies. And uh, they, they prayed for all those those gifts that would kind of put them in the spotlight. And I think that's why Paul is choosing these as part of his discussion. Um, and he says, all these gifts, they're all going to stop. The only thing that's really going to endure is what you did in love for somebody, for God. Even when, when people have passed away, have you ever noticed that, especially at the funeral, everybody remembers all the things they did in love for them? And how we talk about that and how important that is. The balance of the chapter kind of talks about the same thing. And I think if we stop in chapter 8, you kind of get the point. Um, you, you can re read the rest of it uh, when you get home if you want. Uh, and Paul does a, a pretty good job of making his point about the superiority of love. And as a teacher... I understand that you can't talk about every subject. So um, you get done with, I got done reading this and I, I found a problem. And, uh, you know, you can't look at scripture, one scripture in isolation. You have to consider it in the full counsel of God's word. And, uh, and you know, if Paul had, well, infinite time, I guess, to discuss every rabbit trail. He probably could have covered some of these other points. As a matter of fact, he does cover this in other books. Uh, uh, in Ephesians, for instance. Um, so, do you see the problem with this? Have you, it's this list. Have you ever tried to keep a list of behavior? Every time I do it, it's a disaster. Because there's just one more thing that you have to take into account. Now, this list should drive us to repentance when we fail, and that's, and that's good too. But we can't just try, try harder or just do it more or make longer lists. That's what the Pharisees did. They just made sure that if you couldn't do that, then don't do these other things too because we want to make sure that you won't do that too. Now, really what, what we need is we need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is not really... The, the point of this message, but I would like to touch on it for a minute. These, this list 
is really, if anything, it's a scorecard for how we need to change and be more like Jesus. I remember as a child, this, uh, I have a complicated relationship with uh, chapter 13. I remember as a child, my parents would read 1 Corinthians 13 to us when uh, we weren't exactly being loving to each other. And when that didn't work out of frustration, they would tell us that we need to study it on our own. You know how that went over. As the oldest child and perhaps the most stubborn, I think I always resented those scoldings. Um, I know their intentions were good. And I guess God's word does not go out void, and so it was something that eventually soaked into our hearts. But at the time, I was uh, very resentful <laughs> of, of trying to use uh, Scripture because it, I found that it just didn't work, just following the list. Jesus talks about list followers in Matthew 23, 25 through 27. He's talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of Israel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgences. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of dead and everything unclean. What's on the outside of us is far less important than what's on the inside. In the Ephesians uh, 4.24, we read about putting on the new man or the new self and to put on the new self created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. This would be a whole sermon series in of itself but if you want to get more into how to really make that heart change, how to be in contact with the Holy Spirit, uh, that, that section of Scripture would be a really good place to start. Like I said, that would be an entire series unto itself. And Pastor Chad has talked about it. So the bottom line, again, love is a source of good works, not the other way around. Now, to tie this up, I was thinking about, all right, what can we do? And I came up with a list, and I hate lists, but, um, and this is really a starting point uh, for, for us to think about it. Hopefully, you'll have some discussions at lunch or maybe with your community group. But these are four things I came up with to help change our hearts. First of all, we need to be honest with ourselves and with God and humbly confess our shortcomings with the Father and ask Him to change our hearts. That's where it starts, on our knees. We also need to be reminded of the love that's been bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ and what a, what a gift that was and how we are so unworthy. We need to read and pray. Read God's word and listen for his voice. Pray that we'll be transformed to be like Jesus. And finally, remember the Holy Spirit is always there. We can lean on him and ask for guidance. Um, we're all on a journey for sanctifi towards sanctification and this is just one small step I hope for all of us so 
That's about all I have. I'd like to uh, close us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that these words would uh, be transformed in the hearing through your Holy Spirit, that they just not would be my words, but that your Holy Spirit would superintend these words and direct them towards hearts that are wanting to grow and be more like Jesus. And Lord, as we, we leave tonight, or this, this morning, I pray that we would be thinking about how we can love more, love better, how we can have the right attitude, how we can not have a bunch of vain activities that don't mean anything in the end, that don't count towards your kingdom, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.